This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. And in some cases, it's actually kind of sad. And uh, I want to open up the program tonight just, uh, you know, talking about something a little bit personal, because one of the things we do chat about on this show often is uh, how important the uh, animals in our lives are. Our pets, our dogs, our cats, our horses, whatever they happen to be. And when you lose one, it's kind of difficult, especially one that's been in the family for a long long time. And uh, my black lab, uh, Fritzy, um, lost a battle with a little bit of a health issue today. She had gone in for surgery on Monday for some superficial things. It wasn't particularly uh, life-threatening, but um, it needed to be done. And uh, because she's 15 years old, there's always risks involved. She she came home. She seemed okay. And uh, that was what, a little 36 hours ago. And um, today she just started to develop some complications. And um, well, she didn't make it. And she's already left a great big hole and void in this house. Um, so... I, I did want to share my daughter Alex's words because I thought she kind of summed it up pretty beautifully. And she said, if I knew this morning was going to be the last time I saw you, I would have told you it was going to be okay. Fritzy, you were everything to our family for 15 years and brought nothing but joy and smiles to us. You were our protector and our friend, exactly the one we needed. You were a good girl, Fritzy. Time to run around those boundless fields. So Godspeed, Fritzy. Um, Welcome to the program, everybody. I hate to open up on a sad note, but I did want to pay tribute to a wonderful, a wonderful companion. But tonight we're going to be talking about uh, imagination. And um, our guest tonight, Jim Davies, is a professor of cognitive science, and he'll talk about his new book, which is called Imagination, the Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power. And we're going to bring him in in just a, a little bit. But uh, before we do that, I want a couple things I want to do. First, I'm going to look ahead at what we've got coming up. And then there's an article in the news that I think we need to spend a few minutes on. Just uh, tomorrow night's show, we've got two guests for you. In the first hour, we've got Pam Grossman. Pam is a writer, a curator, and a teacher of magical practice and history. And she'll be discussing modern witchcraft in the first hour of tomorrow night's program. In the second hour, Reverend Sean Whittington, who is an ordained exorcist, will be with us to talk about his experience with ghosts, demons, and the paranormal. Friday, of course, is always a best-of show here on Beyond Reality Radio. And then Monday, we've got Lisa Morton coming uh, to the show to join us. Lisa is an author and a screenwriter, and she'll be looking at the history of ghosts from ancient Samaria to today, and she'll examine related entities such as poltergeists, wraiths, and revenants. And then, because we're getting close to Christmas and the Christmas holiday season, Tuesday night show, it's a little bit late to talk about Krampus, 
But we're going to do it anyway with uh, what has become an annual tradition. Jeff Bellinger will be with us. He's an author and a folklorist, podcast host, paranormal researcher. He does a little bit of everything. But he'll be sharing tales of Krampus and other figures uh, and legends from Christmas folklore. That'll be Tuesday's program of next week. So that's going to be pretty exciting. Um, so there's an article in the news, and uh, I need to uh, reference it here because, uh, you know, we've known that Arizona, particularly the Phoenix area, were never a stranger to UFO activity. Well, the skies over Arizona have once again played host to some of that type of activity. And uh, two people, DJ Meyer and Carrie Burnett, captured footage Sunday night of some bizarre lights over their home. They noticed an orange orb in the distant sky. And as they watched, this orange orb dropped other orange orbs. Now, the headline for this article is UFO filmed dropping other UFOs. And that's what was happening. And they caught it on film. I mean, I don't know if Slick Eddie can get that on um, get it, get that on our Facebook page so people can see it or not. Um, but after posting the footage on Facebook, DJ Meyer started to see a lot of comments, people trying to explain it. Some suggested it was some kind of aircraft. And uh, aviation experts actually said it could have been an aircraft that was dropping parachute flares. But others don't buy that explanation, particularly Meyer. He says... There were no navigation lights on the aircraft, and even the military has to have navigation lights on. That's an FAA rule, according to Meyer. And he says, I know what I saw. I don't think it was from here. I think it was definitely something else. We're going to bring into the show right now uh, UFO author and researcher Preston Dennett. He's the author of a book that's called Schoolyard UFO Encounters, 100 True Accounts. His website is PrestonDennett.Weebly.com. Preston, I know you saw the video. What are your initial thoughts on this? Uh, well, first, kudos to the witnesses for capturing on video. There's a lot of sightings like this that people don't capture, and it really is a, you know, a rare thing to be able to capture something like this. Uh, clearly not flares. Uh, I've studied flares. Uh, this is definitely not flares. Too many of them dropping at once. They disappear pretty quickly. Uh, you know, no actual aircraft dropping these things. So, yeah, it's good footage. It's kind of the most common type of sighting we see. By that, I mean an anomalous light at night. So it's hard to say. You know, it doesn't, obviously not a helicopter or plane or anything like this. But as far as alien craft, can't quite jump to that either. Uh, so it's, you know, it's kind of one of those <laughs> things that are frustratingly just quite not quite en- enough information to really say what we're looking at here. Well, you 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 made a very good point when you opened your remarks, saying that uh, you know kudos for the, to them for actually thinking to um, capture it on video, because often we don't get any kind of video. Uh, footage of these types of sightings. But one of the difficult things about this particular kind of sighting is it's the nighttime sky. There's no point of reference. You don't know how big that item is because you can't you can't determine the distance from the camera to the item. Uh, there's nothing in, that you can see in the frame that gives you a sense of reference of size or distance or any of those things. It's just a, just a light on a black canvas. Right. And there is military, you know, relative not super close to the area. You know, there is Luke Air Force Base to the, gosh, north there, and Davis Mountain not too far away. Uh, doesn't look like military to me. Uh, military doesn't normally do these kind of things, you know, within view of, you know, large residential populations. Right. Uh, so, mm, I, I don't know. Yeah, 
again, like you say, it's very hard to determine size and distance, but this is a major hotspot. There's a lot of activity going on. Most of it is not filmed. Uh, so, yeah, one of, the, one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting about this story is it was picked up by mainstream media. It wasn't on, you know, a UFO website, or although it probably is, but, uh, you know, um, this was actually on the evening news kind of thing. So uh, does that give it any more credibility because it makes it to that, uh, that forum? Oh, absolutely. When you have someone who's willing to stand behind their footage and say, you know, not only did I see this, I filmed it, and yeah, this is what I filmed. Because there's a lot of films out there on, you know, YouTube or whatever. Uh, that people aren't standing behind. They're anonymous. You know, it could be anything. Uh, but here's someone who's not only willing to show his footage, but say, you know, give an eyewitness testimony of what they saw. And there's multiple eyewitnesses. So yeah, overall, I mean, it's a great case. They're clearly sincere witnesses. They clearly saw something that's unexplained. It's just there's not quite enough information yeah. to say that you know, you know, what is this? Do you have any knowledge about FAA regulations? This particular witness, the the gentleman who filmed uh, one of the uh, videos, says that even the military has to have navigation lights on their aircraft. It's an FAA rule. Do we know if that's true or not? Yeah, I believe that is true. But, you know, there are all kinds of, I mean, national security issues and secret military testing where that's clearly not happening. Uh, But, again, this would not be something that's conducted over, you know, someone's home. Right. So I don't think that it would be military testing. And looking at it, I mean, gosh, it just doesn't look like any natural weather phenomena that we have. Uh, certainly not one that's been you know, accepted by mainstream science. As the smaller orange uh, orbs are dropping from the larger orange orb in the video, and, and as you said, they disappear rather quickly. Does it look like to you they disappear because they f- they move in a different direction, or do they fade out? Can you tell? Uh, well, it's hard to tell just looking at the footage. It looks like they fade out, but this is something we see you know, quite often. There's a lot of reports of you know, one object disgorging other objects. Um, these are almost the same size as the original object, too. So you know, where are they coming from is kind of... This is something we see a lot with you know, genuine UFO sightings, is one single object dividing and multiplying into... Uh, a large number of objects that are fairly identical. And that's what we're seeing here. So, yeah, it's a good case. It's just really hard to make sense of. And uh, probably, you know, um, wouldn't surprise me if this is not an isolated case. Well, let's... be going on you know, before and after this. Yeah, let's hope that, um, you know, when something like this gets this much attention, a lot more people take their uh, cameras out and start pointing them at the sky, and maybe we'll catch something more definitive next time. Preston, thanks so much for uh, jumping on here and giving us your thoughts on this. Again, your website is uh, is the place to go for more information about your work, including your books. It's PrestonDennett.Weebly.com. Thanks for being here, Preston. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime. All right, so just uh, once again, a reminder, we want you to... Uh, Call in the the second hour of the program if you have questions or comments for our guest tonight, Jim Davies. We're going to be talking about imagination. And the number is 844-687-7669. And uh, final reminder, go to YouTube. Find the YouTube channel. We want you to subscribe to be part of our community on YouTube. When you get there, just search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find the channel. Subscribe. You'll see the live stream of the program, program, the live chat room, plus an archive of back episodes and much, much more bonus content 
as well. That's right on YouTube. Search for JV Johnson. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll bring our uh, next guest into the program, Jim Davies, professor of cognitive science. We're going to be talking about his book, Imagination, the Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power. That's coming up right here on Beyond Reality Radio. Hey gang, it's JV here. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Beyond Reality Radio. Some of you are new to the program, and some of you have been with us for years. And no matter if you're interested in ghosts, the UFO phenomenon, conspiracy discussions, or any of the other topics we explore on this program, we do it for you. Our goal here is to help find answers to some of the world's most enduring mysteries. And as we continue to bring you interviews and discussions each night, it's important that we get your feedback And even more importantly, your support. The media landscape is forever changing. And as it does, we need to be able to change with it. That's why it's important for you right now to go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Once on YouTube, just search for JV Johnson. You'll find it there. Subscribe. It's all free and it'll make you part of our global community. In addition, Beyond Reality Radio is available as a podcast. Go to your favorite podcast platform and search for Beyond Reality Radio and subscribe there as well. And finally, we have an archive program that you may enjoy as well. This show can be found on major podcast platforms, and it's called Beyond Reality Paranormal. By supporting us in one or all of those places, you can be sure we'll be able to continue to deliver quality shows to you, no matter what form the media landscape takes. As a paranormal historian, I promise you the best and most entertaining conversations as we continue to hunt for the truth. We're going to be talking about imagination what might be your mind's greatest power. And in fact, it is, according to our guest, Jim Davies has written a book called Imagination, The Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power. Jim is a professor at the Institute of Cognitive Science at Carleton University. He's the author of the book I just mentioned. He's also author of a book called Riveted, The Science of Why Jokes Make Us Laugh, Movies Make Us Cry, and Religion Makes Us Feel One with the Universe. He's co-host of the award-winning podcast, Minding the Brain. He's director of the Science of Imagination Laboratory, explores processes of visualization in humans and machines, and specializes in artificial intelligence, analogy, problem-solving, and the psychology of art, religion, and creativity. Jim, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. That's a mouthful. You've got your hands full, and you're probably never sleeping. Well, it's good to be on the show. (laughs) Tell me, to get started here, what is a cognitive scientist? A cognitive science is an interdisciplinary field that tries to understand how minds work. Human minds, computer minds, animal minds, um, all kinds, and uh, using different disciplines. So not only psychology, but also neuroscience, artificial intelligence, philosophy, anthropology, linguistics. Uh, so it's it's really a, a big team effort to try to understand how the mind works. And you've been doing it for a while. Yeah, yeah, I've been a professor for over 13 years now. You know, obviously, when you go to school and you start to show an interest in science, you see things, or math, you see things like, you know, biology, you see uh, physics, um, chemistry. You know, there's some real basic, uh, obvious disciplines that fall within science. At what point mm. did this, the study of the mind, particularly the imagination, become something that you wanted to focus on? I uh, actually majored in philosophy and um, had very broad interests. And uh, uh, the chair of the department said, oh, have you ever heard of cognitive science? And I said, no. And he lent me a book and I read it. And I thought that's what I want to do because it <laughs> covered a lot of the things I was interested in, you know. Imagination, I got into uh, later, 
when I was um, getting my PhD, I was working on visual problem solving, how people solve problems by um, looking at one problem and seeing how it visually related to something in the past. And uh, when I would talk about my research, a lot of people would ask me, well, where do these ideas come from? Where do these visual memories come from? And I said, nobody knows. So when I became a professor, I thought that's what I'm going to try to tackle. I'm going to try to understand imagination, try to figure out how we get pictures in our heads. Would you say that the answer to that question is one of the, um, you know, greatest questions that's, that maybe uh, has faced mankind? You know, we have a few that that continually pop up, you know, whether there's a God, what, what is there an afterlife? You know, there are these monumental questions. The power of the human brain, particularly as it relates to imagination, would you say that's one of those questions? I don't know if it's 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 up there with, like, whether there's a God or not. <laughs> you know, I, I understand... You know, as uh, you know, in writing this book, I had to dive really deeply into the research, and I, I see imagination as uh, a very powerful tool in your mind's toolkit of how it does things. Um, uh, but I, I think that humans are one of the only creatures that have imaginations, and uh, many animals do just fine without it. Is is an imagination one of the thing that things that separates humans from the rest of the animal world? Uh, yes, I, you know, there are uh, arguably some crows um, maybe be able to experience imagination, but certainly nothing anywhere near the uh, uh, the ability that humans have. You know, that and language and a couple of other things make us very different. But our ability to um, think about things that might be in the future or uh, possibilities really enhances our uh, ability to plan and be creative and do a whole lot of things. Jim, we're going to be talking a lot about imag- imagination tonight, so it's probably a good idea if we kind of make sure we have an understanding of what it is we're talking about. So we use the sure. word imagination, we throw it around a lot, but what exactly is imagination? The word imagination in English gets used in two basic ways. Uh, the first is kind of just to mean creativity in general. So when someone says, oh, I have a good imagination or that person has no imagination. We're talking about creativity. Um, but the other meaning is just the ability to generate something in your head from memory. Uh, and this is happening when uh, if somebody asks you to imagine what your childhood bedroom looked like. You're not trying to be particularly creative, but you are bringing to mind uh, something. And that's also imagination. And what I mainly talk about uh, when I'm talking about imagination is the second kind. And it can be related to creativity if you're trying to create something new, but it doesn't have to be. If you're trying to imagine as clearly as you can your mother's, the sound of your mother's voice and what, what its vocal qualities are. You're engaging in imagination. So that, that's the way I would describe it. So can it be anything that we can think of or anything we can envision that doesn't exist in front of us at the time? Yeah, that's another, that's another way to put it. And uh, you make a very clear distinction between that and creativity. But isn't creativity tapping into the same ability to be able to envision something that doesn't exist? Uh, You know, there are aspects of creativity that are high imagination and uh, aspects of creativity that are low imagination. So let's take music, for example. We have heard the legends of Mozart, who supposedly could create an entire symphony in his mind before right. he ever wrote anything down. And um, Kanye West also claims to have uh, never written down any of the lyrics for his first several albums. He just had them all in his head and would just recite them as needed. That's a very intense act of imagination. You need to keep, both of those artists needed to keep 
their uh, contents in their in their memory and be able to recall them and form them in their imagination without any external medium. Um, but a low imagination creativity might be uh, certain kinds of improvisation. So jazz improv or theater improv or even gestural drawing sometimes, um, you don't have a lot planned in your head because you need to be responding very quickly and you need to be very in touch with the immediate environment. And uh, I did improv for uh, about 20 years and I was taught over and over again, you cannot have an agenda in your head. You can't plan minutes ahead because uh, that plan will get in the way of doing what you need to do. And so it's much more of a responsive thing. So I would classify that as kind of a low imagination creativity. So you're not the type of guy that's going to spend a lot of time working on something that doesn't have a significance. So tell me why then imagination is so important. Imagination is super important. You know, I don't want to say it's not important for creativity, right? Being able to, (laughs) you know, think of what you want in this world. You want to build something. You want to uh, uh, go forward with a long-term plan. Having the imagination is, is required for um, understanding the consequences of the actions you take, the order of things that you need to do. And imagination is super important because it is uh, implicated in so many of the things we do, in dreaming, in problem-solving, in planning, uh, learning from your mistakes, um, trying to f- uh, figure out how to get places. Anytime that you need to sort of simulate something without actually doing it in the real world, but you just want to simulate it in your head, you're going to have to be using imagination. Now, we we often equate uh, imagination, particularly a a vivid, quote-unquote, vivid imagination with childhood. Uh, Is there Mm -hmm. a difference between a child's imagination and any other kind of imagination? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So... There's a particular kind of imagination that's mental imagery, and this this might be a little bit tricky to understand the difference, but when you picture something in your head or you uh, hear something in your head, like if you've got a, mu- a song stuck in your head, for example, we call that imagery, and, that, and that's a very specific kind of imagination that's very sensory-like. So when you hear a song in your head, it's a little bit like hearing it in real life. It's got a sensory quality to it. Um, but there are kinds of imagination where you have a more of a conceptual imagination. So like if you imagine what it would be like to be married or not be married or something like that, it doesn't really look like anything to be married. You can sort of suppose it, and it's kind of like a conceptual idea. Kids have a, uh, tend to have a more vivid uh, mental imagery, and it sort of peaks in the 20s. And then starts to taper off as you as you get older, um, but the, the conceptual imagination gets richer over time. In part because you just learn more about the world and you have more to work with. Because imagination comes from memory, in some sense, your memory is the fuel of imagination. And the more you learn, the more you can imagine. The, the reason kids um, are thought of as to be really imaginative is because they engage in a lot of pretend play. And they're very uninhibited, right? They don't have a lot of the constraints on imagination that the rest of us do. So they end up thinking things that we find very quirky and interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not it's usually not deep and super useful stuff that they're coming up with. One of the exa- one of the examples uh, that you used was like going back and envisioning 
um, one of our, see, our bedroom as a child. What's the difference mm-hmm. between that and a memory? Well, the memory um, is used to generate the imagined scene, um, and you can uh, you can add whatever you want to it, right? So you can imagine your childhood bedroom full of water, and that is using memories of what things look like when they've got water in them combined with uh, the actual thing that happened to you. Um, the, you know, the tricky thing is that sometimes when you recall something, it feels like something that happened to you, but it might actually just be a, uh, uh, just be your imagination. So this is a false memory problem. Like I have a false memory of riding my tricycle down the stairs. I actually did ride my tricycle down the stairs, but my memory is in the wrong house. My memory is in the house I can remember, not in the house that actually happened, but because the story was told over and over again in my family. I, I visualized it and imagined it every single time the story was told, but I imagined it in the house that I could remember. And now I have this memory that feels as clear as day, but I know must be wrong. Right. So it's not always easy to tell from your memories what actually happened and what is a result of really vivid imagination. Jim, is the book new? Is it just out? Yeah, it came out uh, in November 5. Wow, so it is right off the right off the presses. Um, we were talking about children and the, their ability to use their imagination in in many ways that seem a little foreign when you become an adult. Is part of this because the brain changes as you get older? Do we, or do we just use the tools differently? Yeah, it's thought that um, the play phase is is kind of a um, something that uh, kids do, and we find this across many animal species. Uh, mammals and birds, um, not lizards, but mammals and birds all play in uh, their young years, and they tend to play in ways that reflect the kind of things they're going to need to do as adults. So little kittens will stalk and pounce, and little deer will run and jump and that kind of thing, Um, sort of practicing the kind of behaviors that they're going to do when they get older. And so, you know, humans, when they are young, they engage in lots of play around Uh, up until about age five, they engage in what's called pretend play, which is kind of uh, playing house and doing things that don't really have rules. After age five, they start to get obsessed with social rules and that kind of thing, and they start spending more time arguing about what the rules of the game are, (laughs) um, suggesting that they're entering a phase of life where they're starting to understand that they have to work in a society that has uh, rules and that kind of thing. Um, you know, you brought up pets, and, and earlier you were talking about animals, and we were talking about maybe the differences between humans and other species is this ability to use, use imagination. And I immediately thought of um, the puppy that I've got here at my home uh, who was outside this morning when I was trying to get it to do something very different, but all it would do was play with a rock and just play and play and play. And I and I mm-hmm. wondered if that's a form of imagination that that animal is using because the rock clearly isn't anything that's animate that is that imagination too i really doubt it so it's probably what's happening is that um the dog has an instinct to practice chasing things and chewing things because that's something that a dog in the wild would need to do to survive and so it feels an instinct to uh to do the play things that dogs do chasing and fetching and all those kind of things but i don't think that Doing that requires that the dog imagines that the rock is something that it's not in the same way that uh, when we, you know, throw a uh, when, when little boys like to throw rocks at trees, what's really happening is they're probably practicing hunting strategies 
but they don't have to imagine that the tree is an animal that they're hunting in order for it to be useful. Right. So how do you study this? How does science actually learn <laughs> about this? Yeah, you know, it, it's a great question because it feels very mysterious, right? Imagination is, by definition, an internal process that uh, we don't have an objective measure of. So we do have to use indirect ways to study it. Um, one way to do it is just to ask people what they're imagining. This, you know, you can go pretty far with this, but it's got its limitations because people might um, not want to say what they're imagining in, in, in the case of certain fantasies, for example, um, or if they're embarrassed or racist or whatever. Um, but uh, also we have uh, memory concerns. But you can do other things like um, uh, if somebody's imagining, say, a uh, a particular number and you show them either a number or a letter and you ask them to say, are you, you know, are we showing you a number or a letter? If the number they're imagining is the same as the number you're showing them, they will be faster at identifying it. So that's one way that you can sort of get an objective measure of what's going on in their minds, because when you imagine something, it makes it easier to perceive it and faster to perceive it in the real world. So we use a whole lot of methods like that, but we're not, not at the point where you can do a brain scan and uh, like read off somebody's brain uh, what they're imagining yet. This may be um, a question kind of from left field, but we've had people on the program before that talk about remote viewing and astral mm -hmm. projection and these concepts whereby the mind in some fashion can see something that isn't in front of them or can connect to something that isn't in front of them or near them. Um, have you studied the connection between imagination and, and those types of phenomena? Yeah, I, I have. Um, so those kinds of things uh, are generally thought by scientists to be hallucinations. Um, one of the interesting things about astral, so-called astral projection, uh, seeing yourself like when you're, you know, the classic is you're in a, a hospital room and you and you you find yourself above right. your body looking down on it. That's called autoscopy, um, and it seems to be a um, a problem, a hallucination when your body isn't getting much input regarding the position of your limbs. So that's why it happens in a hospital bed. And in fact, people who don't have very, who, people who are not very in touch with their bodies are more likely to experience that. So dancers, athletes, they don't have astral projection very much. People in wheelchairs, people confined to hospital beds, they are the ones who experience these things. Um, and it's probably a, a hallucination because of the lack of stimulation of uh, where, you know, their body's motion and stuff but it gets interpreted as their soul leaving their body or something like that. I asked you about uh, how science has the ability to actually study this. Um, is this particular science mature or is it in its infancy? I'd say it's, it's still fairly new. I mean, there's a lot we don't understand. There's certainly a lot of the uh, way that we want to describe it in terms of how the brain works. That's very, very poorly understood. Uh, but a lot of it is, um, uh, you know, we have hypotheses and theories and we, we do experiments to see if if they make sense. But um, a lot of what we believe about it could change. I mean, a lot, uh, the mind, the study of the mind itself is, is actually still pretty, pretty new. I would say it's kind of pre-Newton in terms of uh, if you're yeah. compared to physics, we're kind of like pre-Newton. We are, but it seems to me, just based on things I've read and, and things that have been discussed on the program here, that we seem to be make, turning some corners, making some great strides in this particular area. Do you agree with that? Yeah, you know, there's some, there's some, there's some fascinating stuff, and, and we do have a lot of 
data collected on how people behave, but um, you know, trying to understand how the whole system works inside in terms of information processing, uh, that's a real challenge. Part of it's because so much interacts with so much that you can't isolate variables like you can in chemistry or something. Are you able to determine which part of the brain uh, is used for imagination and is it, is, does it correlate to any other processes? Yeah, it's a lot. If you're doing mental imagery, it has a lot to do with those areas that perceive things in the real world. So if you're imagining um, a music or a sound, you'll have auditory activity. Uh, if you're imagining something that's visual, you'll have activity in the visual areas. But um, imagination tends to use a lot of the brain because you're using memory. And memory is kind of distributed throughout the brain. So when you're engaged in, let's say you're imagining running down a hill with a kite, I mean, there is so much that your mind has to figure out to be able to simulate that. You have to have a, you know, your understanding of physics and your understanding of um, how your body's going to move. And so you're using your motor system. And so the whole brain is really quite active. Yeah, I was going to kind of picking up on that particular point. Do you have to have some kind of experience, a real world experience to be able to imagine something? In other words, if, you know, if I envision a fantasy world with, you know, one eyed creatures and unicorns or whatever, do I have to have, have been exposed to those things to be able to imagine them? The short answer is yes. I mean, there might be some exceptions, but in general, your imagination is only a sort of a remix of all the things that you've seen in the real world. And you know what's interesting? I like to point this out. Even like these flights of fancy that fiction authors make, like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or whatever, when you look at the world itself, it's mostly realistic. Like there's there's usually gravity. There's like people interact in normal ways. Uh, you know, it's, the entire Star Trek universe is based on changing people's foreheads and ears, right? Yeah, <laughs> so right. <laughs> it, it's really not, that different from the real world you have to have a very solid basis in the real world and only tweak things here and there and that's what people find most satisfying and creative so yes absolutely you know even like what you just said a one-eyed creature you're still talking about a creature the eye is a recognizable sense organ um if you were you know in your imagination this one-eyed creature it, that eye was probably in its head so you can see how you're you're drawing on what you know about the world and just tweaking it in certain ways in an attempt to be creative. And indeed, if you get, if you if you go too far from reality, people won't accept it. Tonight we're talking about imagination. Many of us think we know exactly what we're talking about. When it, but when it comes to science, maybe we're starting to uh, learn a little bit more than we thought we uh, existed about this particular uh, asset of the mind. Would you consider this to be an asset, Jim? Is this something that helps us every day? Oh, yeah. The imagination is super important for uh, navigating the world and thinking about it. Um, it's not always good. It, it can sometimes hurt you. But yeah, in general, you, you got to have it. Is imagination responsible for many, if not all, of uh, the great inventions, say, uh, that uh, humanity has produced? Uh, I wouldn't say all of them, but certainly many. You know, there are a lot of serendipitous inventions, like the discovery of uh, penicillin and um, the, the sticky stuff that is used to make post-it notes. <laughs> um, sometimes <laughs> it's a matter of recognizing something good when it happens serendipitously. Um, but a lot of the um, uh, inventions that we give people a lot of credit for inventing uh, are very uh, creative and re required an extensive use of imagination, particularly the creation of complex objects. It's hard to, it's hard to come up with accidentally. 
there's a famous story, and I, I can't come up with it. I'm, I'm racking my brain right now uh, of an inventor who had a dream and envisioned some very complex invention. And uh, actually, when they had woken up from this dream, they knew the, all the answers to solving the problem of creating this invention. And I was hoping that as I started to tell the story, Jim, you were going to be able to fill in the blanks for me. Not ringing any bells? Um, I don't know about inventions. I know of, of a few scientific discoveries, like the uh, discovery of the shape of the benzene ring uh, was a problem that um, somebody was working on. Kekulé was working on for a long time, couldn't figure it out, and then dreamed of a snake eating its tail and woke up and was like, that's it. That's <laughs> It's in right. a ring. No one thought of that before. So, But dreams are a form of imagination, right? So, uh, you know, it did help with that. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Um, you know, when when we dream... We see things uh, that are in many ways a twisted form of our reality or an alternate version of, of what we see every day. And in mm-hmm. some cases, we're doing things that we can't physically do in the real world. Um, so I would assume that imagination has to play a big part and is very, very connected to dreaming. Yeah, it is. It is connected to dreaming. And um, like uh, imagination, dreaming does also draw from memory uh, and creates uh, movies in your head, so to speak. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a very, still a very mysterious thing, but, um, yeah, I have a whole chapter. My book has a whole chapter about dreaming. Well, I, f- I find that even more fascinating because, um, in talking with dream experts frequently, uh, we'll, we'll be told that dreaming is actually a process by which the, the brain clears some clutter out of you, out of itself, um, and kind of solves some of its own problems. And if it is in fact using imagination to do that, that makes imagination even more important. Yeah, if if people don't dream, like if you wake them up whenever they start to enter REM sleep, for example, they'll start hallucinating in in real life, in like their waking life. So it appears that dreaming is very important. Uh, exactly what it's for is a matter of a lot of controversy in science. Uh, I, you know, I have my theory that I like the best, but um, yeah, we still don't know for sure. You keep offering these segues to me. I love it. Um, you mentioned <laughs> hallucinations, and that was my next question. Um, where do hallucinations fit into all of this? Right. So um, some hallucinations are imaginations that you don't realize are imaginations. So um, you might uh, your part of your mind might generate an imagination of remembering something somebody said. uh, And then because of a communication problem in your brain, between the parts of your brain, uh, your auditory system might not realize that the signal came from inside the brain rather than the ear. And then you hear something and then you like, I didn't think that and I'm hearing it. Therefore they're, you know, I'm hearing a voice. So those are, those are really uh, overlaps of imagination and hallucination. Um, But hallucinations can happen in all kinds of ways. Um, We just did an episode about it on my podcast. Uh, People want to listen to all eight reasons, but you know, it can get, it can get all the way, it can get very simple, like right down to um, when people have migraines, sometimes they can see zigzag lines in their peripheral vision. And that's not coming from memory. That's just uh, extra activation in your sensory areas uh, causing a perception of lines or spots. In fact, if you, if you, if you track the, um, the seizure that's going on in the head, you can tell what the person's seeing in their hallucination because of where the seizure is. If it's in the part of the brain that detects edges or spots, that's what the person's going to see. 
I'm not sure where this fits into the discussion, um, but what about hallucinogenic drugs? Uh, you know, we often hear uh, of of artists in particular. And I know you said there's a bit of a delineation between artistic uh, creativity versus uh, the imagination we're talking about. But, you know, the Beatles are notorious for having used <clears throat> hallucinogenics or even marijuana to increase their creative output. And, uh, you know, from what I understand, you know, the, you, you know, visions and things become much more vivid uh, using these substances, not that I'm condoning it at all. But how does that interact with imagination? Does it at all? Yeah. Uh, and you're talking to somebody who, uh, an American who now lives in Canada where they just legalized cannabis. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, um, well, okay. So drugs have a couple of things going on. One is that generally recreational drugs cause a decrease in inhibition. So you are more likely to put together um, things that you normally wouldn't think of at the same time. Um, and that uh, it's a it's a it's related to creativity, but you also end up thinking of a lot of garbage. Like you can just go through the dictionary and put random words together. Most of those combinations are going to be not not very interesting. But once in a while, you might come up with something really great. Um, now, some drugs, including uh, hashish, uh, can cause hallucinations, and that also might be contributing to creativity. The people I know who who partake in cannabis for purposes of creativity generally don't do it for the hallucination aspect of it they do it more for the uh relaxing and and um and the re relaxing of their body and relaxing of constraints uh but yeah there there's a whole bunch of different drugs that have very uh interesting different perceptual effects so classically uh LSD for example causes perceptual hallucinations and what that means is you might see colors on the wall or somebody's face might get distorted where if you're taking uh, ayahuasca and whose active drug is DMT, that's, that's a South American a cocktail that they make, uh, the natives make, um, you have kind of a, it's almost like a dreamlike hallucination where you perceive an entire world with characters. And so people who are on ayahuasca typically don't want to see anything. They'll, they'll lie in a dark room with their eyes shut because otherwise they'll get like double vision with their hallucination in the real world, where in LSD, it takes something in the real world and sort of modifies it. Are there levels or degrees of how well a person can use or access their imagination, or does everybody have the same ability? Everybody has, well, the people differ on, they definitely differ on the vividness of their imagery, okay? So some, your readers or your listeners, excuse me, will probably be very, interested to know that there are some people who have extraordinarily vivid images. So when they imagine something, it's more like seeing uh, something in the real world than the rest of us. And then there are people who have none at all. There are some people who cannot picture anything in their heads. And, and what's interesting is that they seem to get along just fine. They have imagination. They can do the conceptual imagination. People tuning in just now, I, I talked earlier about, like, you can just imagine hypothetical situations without, like, picturing it. Some people can't picture it. So you tell them, imagine a beach and there's a bird flying overhead, and they don't know what you're talking about. They can't really picture it. They can just sort of hypothetically imagine a beach scene, but they don't see it in their mind's eye. So those people are what we'd say have very low imagery vividness.
If you are watching on the live YouTube stream, you've been uh, treated to some pretty cool retro videos and some nostalgia. That's what we do during the breaks on the YouTube feed. And if you haven't found the YouTube feed, just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson and subscribe to the channel. It's free to subscribe. You'll be uh, part of our YouTube community, which is growing um, every day, and we look forward to having you as part of it. Also, check us out on Facebook. It's Beyond Reality Radio, and my page is JVJ Paranormal. Look for me as well. Like and follow the page so you can stay uh, uh, up to date on what we've got going on here on the radio program. Tonight, we're talking with Jim Davies. We're talking about imagination. One of the things with you kind of touched on for a moment, Jim, and I want to get into more detail on this in this particular segment, is the idea that, um, you know, an imagination can be good, it can be helpful, it can be a lot of really beneficial things, but is there ever an, uh, a, a situation where an imagination is harmful? Absolutely. So imagination is useful, uh, as we talked about, for planning and, and thinking about uh, what you're going to do. Uh, and it can also be pleasurable. So when you fantasize about something uh, that makes you happy, but there are people who fantasize too much. Uh, some people call it compulsive fantasizing or maladaptive daydreaming. And they're so they find their fantasies so compelling that they cancel plans. They'll just lie in bed all day fantasizing. They can't stop. Uh, it's not really a recognized disease um, in the uh, Diagnostic Manual of uh, Mental Disorders. But uh, you can go on YouTube and find a lot of people who really struggle with this, that they, they have trouble and it interferes with their life. Um, that's kind of an amazing thing. There's also imagination is really the essence of anxiety. So people who are very anxious about the future often uh, can't stop thinking about um, some you know, possible futures that are distressing, and it uh, gets in the way. We also see problems with uh, PTSD, people who've uh, experienced traumas. Um, their problem is they can't stop imagining it over and over again. So, yeah, it can uh, it can get in the way. I don't know if it extends to this, uh, but, you know, there are people, uh, whether it's disorders like schizophrenia or there are other people who just say they hear voices in their head and they have, they've, mm -hmm. they have get input from voices and things that are um, outside of themselves, but they hear them in their mind. Uh, yeah. Is that a dysfunctional imagination? Yes. So uh, Voices in the Head, uh, actually, JV, I went to the, an, a three-day scientific conference on heard, on heard voices and imagined people, if you can believe it. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. I loved it. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, that appears to be an act of imagination, uh, and, it, and it's a hallucination, uh, and we describe it as lacking insight, which is um, where your mind is generating something, but your uh, the other part of your mind is not aware that your mind is generating it, so it interprets it as coming from uh, outside in some sense. So yes, that's a that is a sort of a um, a form of imagination gone wrong. I noted that um, in in reading more about your work and the things that you do, that you're a, a game designer. Is that uh, like computer games or board games or? And I'm just I'm just thinking that's got to be a, a very imaginative uh, endeavor. Well, it's a very creative endeavor for sure, and uh, I do try to engage in imagination. I've, I've made a couple uh, video games. Mostly I'm a role-playing game designer, actually. Oh, wow. Um, it's funny because uh, I don't think you're actually seeing the YouTube stream because you're oh, connected. I could hear it. 
Yeah, so yeah, so our our uh, producer Orion was actually playing uh, nostalgia commercials about old video games and uh, role playing games. So that, that, yeah, that, that's right. That's right. Another very interesting coincidence here. Um, but when you look at people that do that kind of work, um, you know, again, we we kind of muddy the waters between creativity and imagination. But you have to be able to imagine things and and plan things and kind of walk through these steps to make something like that work. Absolutely. Uh, something as complex as a game, you certainly have to use your imagination. Now, just speak as a role-playing game designer, you know, you think about dice mechanics and what, how it's going to cause incentives to make players behave uh, in certain ways. And uh, that's, you know, usually done by imagining, like, well, what would I do in that situation? What would, what, what would the people I game with do? And uh, also your imagination of what else could the world look like, the world that you're gaming in? Are you going to have vampires? Are you going to have this or that? And how do you do something new with it? Oh, yeah, it's intense imagination. Jim, we have a very active uh, chat room and a lot of questions flying through here. <laughs> I want to grab a couple if I can. Um, Crystal asks, would a traumatic event in a person's life um, that could cause your imagination to overcome your reality, is that something that can happen? I'm, I'm sorry, what's the question? It, could a traumatic event... Cause your imagination to overcome your reality. Basically, you overcome your reality. Yeah, you would. I guess you would uh, turn inward and live in an imaginary world in your head. Uh, I actually have never heard of any uh, disease that would work that way. Um, people, when they get traumatized, um, you know, they 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 don't really um, tend to generate new realities. Um, it, it's more of a uh, you can you can be very disturbed by it and, and uh, relive the trauma again and again. Um, but I don't see people like um, uh, having a, g- gaining like um, a lot of hallucinations all the time, for example. Uh, you mentioned PTSD at one point, I think. And one of the points you were making is PTSD, a form of um, an imagination that uh, actually... Uh, is counterproductive to us? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, in PTSD, you can um, have, uh, you might not be able to stop thinking about the traumatic event. And also you might hallucinate an extreme, like uh, for war veterans, sometimes they might hear a sound that is enough like a helicopter that they will uh, go into a panicky mode and start hallucinating that they're uh, in the war again. So uh, yeah, in that sense, they're sort of creating a new reality. But uh, thankfully, those episodes tend to be relatively short-lived in the context of their entire life. I think I'm, I'm pretty confident I know the answer to this question based on many of the things you've already brought up. Okay. But I'll ask it anyway. Can an imagination be involuntary? Oh, oh yeah, of course. You know, you, you might have uh, uh, had somebody describe something that was disgusting or something, and you hear somebody say, oh, thanks for that image, right? because you just can't help but um, something coming to mind. You know, when you read novels, you're concentrating on reading, and uh, often you'll get, uh, you'll be surprised sometimes by a very vivid image that the words evoke uh, in your head. So yeah, it's not always voluntary. And certainly in those cases of anxiety, uh, you know, people have to go to therapy to stop the imagination. So not only is it involuntary, but it's sometimes unwanted. Can you teach people or can people learn how to better harness their imagination to solve problems? So this is, that's a great question. You can, you can learn to have a better imagination in certain domains and fields. So if you study 
geology, you know, you'll, you'll learn about how to imagine different strata of rock and everything in a three-dimensional way. If you study architecture, you get better at imagining architectural spaces. Um, uh, there, the, the evidence on improving your imagery is interestingly mixed. So on the one hand, you have uh, religious organizations that have people vividly imagine uh, God or gods, and then eventually they hallucinate um, seeing the gods, and sometimes that is interpreted by the religious people as a religious revelation. I, I consider it hallucination, but some would consider it um, revelation. So it appears that practicing can cause vivid imagery. But on the other hand, there have been some very careful scientific experiments that have people practicing imagery, and they don't get any better at it. So, um, you know, it, it, it's a, the science is still kind of mixed on that. If we figure out and we can, and we, as we look to cure diseases like Alzheimer's disease and we better map the brain and we learn more about its physiology, are we going to, is, is learning about the physiology the same as learning about the function of the brain? No, 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 no. I mean, the physiology, well, it can, but not necessarily. Physiology is just a, just a biological term for like the functioning of a biological system. Right. And, um, you know, learning about like the ion channels in a neuron doesn't help you understand anything about cognition, for example, um, in the same way that, uh, you know, studying ink doesn't teach you anything about Shakespeare. So you've got <laughs> to you got to um, uh, look at uh, large uh, how brain circuits function and different information gets passed around the brain to be able to relate it to the things that your listeners care about. Uh, I know that you have your hand in artificial intelligence as well, and we've seen leaps and bounds uh, of progress in that particular discipline. And there are those who are a bit concerned uh, that we may be crossing some lines that we won't be able to recross uh, in the backwards direction when we create machines that have an artificial intelligence capacity that will be able to do things like um, self-preserve or, and you tell me if this is possible, have an imagination. Oh, well, the, the recent breakthroughs in artificial intelligence that you're referring to are a result of a technique called deep learning discovered actually in Canada in 20, uh, 2012. And uh, some of their most impressive and early acts were those of imagination. So the deep, um, deep dream, uh, which was called the inception machine at first, uh, caused some incredibly startlingly beautiful images. Um, and so, yes, imagine, uh, there are imaginative computers. There are creative computer software already with us. Um, for the most part, it is not frightening yet. <laughs> but uh, yes, there is there. Uh, we people have created lots of uh, creative and uh, imaginative uh, software already. Do you fear a day when we cross a line? Um, maybe it's with imagination and artificial intelligence or just artificial intelligence in general, that it becomes d dangerous to humankind? You know, I will say that the experts uh, in artificial intelligence disagree about this a lot. I'll give you my opinion that um, I, I do think that someday we're going to have um, software more intelligent than human beings, and it would behoove us to try to make sure that it's friendly because it could be it could be a disaster. Yeah, it could be a disaster. It could also be um, really great for us, you know, and be able to solve problems that we that perhaps we are incapable of solving with our limited minds. Perhaps um, a, uh, a stronger artificial intelligence might be able to help us out. But we'd have to make sure that uh, it's got our best interests at heart. Well, that's the thing. And I think there are two kinds of fear here. The more, more immediate fear is that artificial intelligence is basically going to mean that everybody's job is obsolete. Um, 
Right. The other fear is that artificial intelligence progresses to a point where it its its uh, primary goal is to self uh, self preservation at the expense of humans. Um, so those are two very different fears, I think, but uh, both have been discussed. I want to take uh, the few minutes we have remaining, and I want to move the conversation to the other book that uh, you have written called "Riveted: The Science sure. of Why Jokes Make Us Laugh, Movies Make Us Cry, and Religion Makes Us Feel One with the Universe." I I love the title. I love the concept. <laughs> and um, I'm very, very curious as to the answer to those questions. What is it about? That that was a very hard title to come up with. Um, the book is a, actually a science is like a psychological scientific theory of why we find anything compelling. So it's about uh, uh, your your readers or your listeners would be interested in this. It's a, a lot of it's about the paranormal. It's about uh, religion. It's about art, like anything that draws us and makes us interested. Why? And so I try to find some fundamental um, aspects of the mind that all these things share. Why do we watch sports? Why do we read novels? Why do we like jokes? And, um, you know, why, why does every culture drawn to a religion? So that's what that book's about. It's, it's a, a, a tour through the mind and, and what, what draws us in. I'm kind of curious, and I don't know if it's something that you can answer in, you know, in a, with a brief answer, um, but I'm kind of curious as to why we do things like laugh. Uh, you know, biologically, it seems a little bit weird. It doesn't really seem to have a purpose like eating does. Yeah, laughter I can, descri- laughter I can describe pretty easily. La- laughter appears to be, it's going to be a mouthful, so I'll break it down, <laughs> but it, it appears to be a signal that what appears to be dangerous is actually okay. Huh. So... You'll, studies of laughter show that um, most laughter does not occur when anything funny happens. Most laughter uh, is stuff like you meet a friend in an unexpected place, and every, everyone starts laughing, and there's nothing funny. But like, but what's going on is that there's something unexpected, and that triggers a very um, uh, primal fear reaction. But there's nothing wrong, so they laugh. People laugh on roller coasters. Okay, so um, any and then when you even look at humor, the basis of all humor is uh, incongruity. So you uh, are expecting one thing and you see another. um, And that is um, uh, at a very low level kind of dangerous. And when you realize that it's actually safe, people will laugh. They've done really funny experiments like this. They had an experiment where people like are lifting up three buckets in a row um, and they and they, the first two buckets are fairly heavy, and then the third one is really light. And but they didn't expect that, and people will right. laugh <laughs> just just because it's a light bucket. I mean, what the hell is so funny? There's nothing funny about it. But that's like that's the incongruity theory of humor. Interesting. Uh, you also write fiction, poetry, plays. Any of that published? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've got a uh, online serial right now of uh, superheroic mice fighting uh, supernatural threats. <laughs> that threaten children. It's called Eve Pixie Drowner and the Mycene Council. You can get it. You can find it through my website, jimdavies.org. Um, what's next on your uh, to-do list? Oh, I'm writing another book on uh, the science of uh, happiness, productivity, and being a good person. Sounds noble. Um it's been, it's, been, it's been a great conversation. Uh, both, the, both of the books we talked about tonight, Imagination and, and Riveted, uh, I know that you've got information on your website. Give out your web address again and let people know where they can find the books and any other social media information yep. that you want people to have. That's uh, www.jimdavies.org. And I just learned that you can actually listen to the Imagination book on Spotify. 
So uh, if people want to listen to it free, it's on Spotify. Now, let me just say, have I been saying jimdavies.com or have I been saying jimdavies.org when I've given the web address? I don't remember, but it is .org, uh, I don't right? know if you've given the way. It oh, is okay. .org okay. I, because I'm an organism, JD. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for being here. Fascinating discussion. Good luck with the books and uh, hope to have you back sometime. I'd love to. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube. Go to the YouTube uh, page and just search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find it. The name of the page is J.V. Johnson's Beyond Paranormal. We stream live there, plus we have an archive of back episodes, something in the neighborhood of 450 or so back episodes there, and some bonus content. So once you get there, please subscribe to the channel, and uh, that way you'll be part of our community. Also, like us on Facebook. That's going to do it for tonight. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll catch you all tomorrow night. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at J.V.J. Paranormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.